Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary. Today on The Charlie Kirk Show, I sit down with the great and the legendary Ben Shapiro. We talk all things alt-right, common good conservatives versus natural rights and limited government conservatives, and the fate of neoliberalism. I touch a lot of this on our podcast, so you guys can email us always, freedom at charliekirk.com, freedom at charliekirk.com. I also touch on this on my upcoming book, MAGA Doctrine, pre-order your copy today, found on Amazon and your book provider, type in MAGA Doctrine and pre-order your copy. You guys are going to love this exclusive conversation with the great Ben Shapiro, uh, but before we go any further, make sure you're subscribed to The Charlie Kirk Show, type in Charlie Kirk Show to your podcast provider right now, take out your phone, Charlie Kirk Show press that subscribe button, leave us a five-star rating, and enjoy this exclusive and very exciting and entertaining conversation with Ben Shapiro. Charlie, what you've done is incredible here. Maybe Charlie Kirk is on the college campus. I want you to know we are lucky to have Charlie Kirk. Charlie Kirk's running the White House, folks. I want to thank Charlie. He's an incredible guy. His spirit, his love of this country. He's done an amazing job building one of the most powerful youth organizations ever created, Turning Point USA. We will not embrace the ideas that have destroyed countries, destroyed lives, and we are going to fight for freedom on campuses across the country. That's why we are here. Ben, welcome to the Charlie Kirk Show. Hey, thanks Quite for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, so I guess everyone is hearing and looking at the public enemy number one and two of the alt-right from this last yeah, semester. Yeah, huh? What do you make? Welcome to the party, yeah, pal. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. So, uh, geez, what, what do you make of all that, especially in the, in the last months? I mean, you've been battling the, the alt-right and, you know, this kind of... Well, it's been years long. For, from sure. where I said, it's been, it's been going on mm-hmm. for a while, right? I mean, they've been targeting me since 2015, 2016. Uh, and the resurgence was, was sort of surprising. Yeah, I will it was say a little that. unexpected. Yeah, and, and the planning, I will say... I have admiration for their for their planning abilities via mm-hmm. their various posting boards. I, I think that that what it demonstrates is a couple of things. One, there there are a group of people who feel as though their questions are not being answered in in mainstream fashion, uh, and I think that because those questions are not being answered in mainstream fashion, they are looking for people to answer them in the worst possible ways. And that's a point Steven Pinker has made before. I think it's exactly right. I think that mm-hmm. it's incumbent on people in politics to, to give answers to questions, even if the questions happen to be uh, based on, on bad ideas. With that said, what, what I'm concerned about and confused by is, is groups of people who pretend that opposition to the alt-right is somehow opposition to restrictions on immigration mm-hmm. uh, or that opposition to the alt-right is somehow based on opposition to social conservatism. Yeah. That's a lie. I mean, these are, these are very, very distinct causes and very distinct philosophies and ideologies. And, and the fact that the alt-right is masquerading as sort of a mainstream slash paleocon yeah. movement, as opposed to what they are, which is pretty overtly a, a white, a white separatist, white, white majoritarian movement. You know, the, the fact that people are willing to buy that is, is foolishness, obviously. Well, and what is important to, 
to talk about, and you, you mentioned it briefly, is there are well-intentioned students that get caught up in this nonsense and ask fine questions. And then there's really, really bad stuff. I mean, I, sure. exactly. I'm, I was getting questions about dancing Israelis. And I was—I had no idea what the hell they were talking about. I, I could tell. Like I saw well, that clip, and I was like, you know Charlie, "Charlie has no idea what they're talking about." And, and unless you're versed in sort of their meme, their memory, you don't know what the hell they're talking about. Yeah, beyond evil, what they're insinuating, right? And, of course. And the the fact that it was popping up the way it was as as quickly as, and I was trying to tell people, um, and it obviously spread, and you know, and I think then it was obvious, you know, stamped it, out it, it, quickly. It, well, it, I think more, more than stamped out, I think it, it collapsed as soon mm-hmm. as it met the light of day. Yes. Meaning that I think that at, at the very beginning, people didn't know sort of how to deal with it. And then you started just answering questions as they came. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I did the same thing. I gave the speech at Stanford where I went directly after them and, and just quoted them uh, and then just answered their questions. And their, their questions, which they have five or six of them that they would ask repeatedly, are not questions that are particularly difficult to answer, but they're questions that had not been answered specifically because they're very often badly motivated. Yeah. And because they're badly motivated, the temptation is to say, okay, well, I'm not going to answer it. Well, that's exactly what they want in many cases, which is, oh, well, they wouldn't answer the question because they mm-hmm. didn't know the answer. They wouldn't answer or the question. Or they're afraid to they're talk afraid about it. They're afraid to yeah. talk about it. So, so as soon as everybody and, – and it was sort of a universal thing. You saw this. I mean, Dave Rubin was answering their questions. Alicia Krauss was answering their questions. People from my company. Um, Michael Knowles was answering their questions. The full Clay Ben Walsh. Yeah. Like every, everybody was answering their questions. Then it was like, okay, well, their questions aren't good. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's where it started to fall apart for them is that their questions were were bad questions, and questions that had rotten central fallacies. Uh, now, does that mean, again, the, the, to conflate the bad questions with some issues that, that sort of people were attracted to, I think is a mistake. I think there are a lot of people who are attracted to questions about immigration restrictionism, for example. They're saying, okay, well, it's true that the Republican Party has been too open borders. I mean, that's something that I basically agree with. I mean, you can go find I remember you of talking me. about this five, six years yeah, ago. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can, you can find, you can find hour long conversations between me and Ann Coulter about immigration restrictionism. I mean, Michelle Malkin and I were friends for 20 years. I mean, like, it's not as though I've been friendly to the open borders position, but the, the attempt to conflate the two is, it's a smart move by the alt, right? I mean, for, for them to sort of hide under the, the MAGA hat and say, well, we're the true MAGAites or we're the true immigration restrictionists. And if you're really immigration restrictionists, then you should come along with us. But you're also going to have to swallow this big pill about, you know, like how, how racism is, is a, is an effective tactic and, and, like, a, and, a, and a morally useful thing. <laughs> you, like, well, no, they, they we're going to have to go no on that. And, so, and obviously separating you know, students that have well-intentioned questions and all that, but the really hateful individuals that were doing this, it's very Alinskyite. Yes. If you look at it. And I think they openly acknowledge that, right? Yeah, I mean, it's I like think- use the symbology of the movement against the movement itself. And you made the point that there's nothing conservative about trying to make this artificial group identity on skin color. In fact, it's collectivist in just a different form. Yes. And these are not, in fact, it was, it was one of the events that I did, one of the clips that went viral, I said, does anyone here, you know, support Identify Europa? And some lunatic said, oh, yeah, I do. It's yeah. great, you know. And basically, after two questions, it became remarkably clear he wants a white ethno state. Right. Look, tribalism is unfortunately a natural human tendency, but what's great about founding ideology, and I think the ideology of Western civilization, is that it did cross those lines, and it suggested that tribalism is not the answer to the ills, the, the, the ills that, that plague humanity, that in fact, universal, universal values that are applied through reason and through basic Judeo-Christian morality, mm-hmm. th- those are applicable anywhere. Those are applicable 
to anybody who wants to take part in them. That doesn't mean everybody's going to want to take part in them. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to leave their tribalism behind. And we have to fight against tribalism on all sides. But when you see the alt-right basically making common cause with the identity politics left, if you are a conservative, you have to say to yourself, well, something here is wrong. Mm -hmm. And we have to make it clear, these are, it's like 20 people. This is not a mass movement. These, the fringe on the fringe of these people. And they make it seem as if, the media wants to make it as seem as if they're much bigger and much well, more popular. The, the media loves this stuff. Right? And that's I mean, what you said at Stanford, yeah. is they, the left and the, the far left and the media need the alt-right. Right, because they, their goal is to cast you as alt-right. That's I mean, correct. They, I mean, they, they've cast me as alt-right a, a million times. I've had to force... Three, four separate mainstream publications. Guardian or something. Uh, it was uh, which the Economist. Economist the Economist. Right. Okay. The Economist called me the alt right sage without the rage, and I wrote to them and I was like, guys, I don't think you know what alt right means, and and they had to retract it. And then the mm -hmm. Boston Globe did the same thing. They wrote a column calling me alt right. They had to retract that too. I mean, the, the fact is, the media use the term alt right as a catch all for people on the right that we don't like, mm -hmm. and that's what the alt right wants. What the alt right desperately wants is to magnify their numbers by lumping in people like you who've been attacked by the alt-right, people like me who've been attacked by the alt-right, people who forcibly oppose the alt-right, mm -hmm. who've stood up and said the alt-right is garbage. What, they, what the alt-right would like is for there to be mass confusion about what the term actually means so that they can make it seem as though it's more than five guys. Do you guys have sizable student loan debt where you sold a bunch of lies from the cartel of the colleges? Well, you guys need to find out about Credible. Credible.com. They do a great job. They're an online marketplace that gets you pre-qualified student loan refinancing rates from up to 10 different lenders. So what are they trying to do? They help people get out of student loan debt. That simple. If you have student loan debt, stop what you're doing and listen to this because you could benefit. They refinance your student loan, which with a lower rate, you could save on interest, lower your monthly payment. And with a shorter loan term, you can get debt-free faster. You can consolidate all your student loan bills in one place, and you get serious peace of mind. Credible customers have given awesome reviews. I've seen these reviews myself. I look at all these partners of ours. On Credible, you see actual pre-qualified rates from up to 10 lenders. Whereas with some online marketplaces, you get a range of rates with ballpark estimates. It only takes a couple minutes to check rates, and it doesn't impact your credit. That's right does not impact your credit. I can't stand when they do that. And they will never sell your data. Huge on privacy. So here's what you do. Credible.com slash Charlie. C-R-E-D-I-B-L-E.com slash Charlie. When you refinance your student loan via Credible, they'll give you a $200 gift card. That's it. Fill in a couple pieces of info to check what rates you're eligible for. Again, that's Credible.com slash Charlie. Credible.com slash Charlie. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary. I'm a little worried about the direction of some of these conversations within the conservative circles where it seems as if, and this is a little bit different than the alt-right, but more of kind of some of the proposals of the new right, which is we have to use the instruments of government power to correct some of the problems that the left has done in our culture and society. And you did a, you did a very good podcast about this whole um, conversation about restricting pornography. Yes. So, I mean, so this is a different conversation. We should make a yeah, hard break here. That, okay? that's, this is that's, very different. Just just so, so everybody yeah. understands, the conversation we're about to have is very different from mm -hmm. the conversation that we just had. Common good conservatives, as, as I think they would like to call themselves, common good conservatives who are, who are sort of 
they see themselves in sort of a Russell Kirkian mm-hmm. mold, uh, almost a Burkean mold, that, that rights-based conservatism, they say, has failed, classical liberalism has failed, that traditional values can only be protected by a government that is active in the realm of economics and social policy. Yeah, that, that is an argument that has some roots. Those roots don't lie in racism, obviously, or bigotry, the way that the alt-right yes. arguments do. Um, the, I think the argument is wrong. I think the argument is wrong because I think it it, it ignores fundamental realities about human nature. I think it also completely ignores fundamental realities about government. I think that on a pragmatic level, it's wrong. So the, I wrote a column sort of contrasting the two views. So to, to clarify the views, rights-based conservatives believe that there are certain rights that exist in us, that pre-exist government, that are God-given, and that government was instituted in order to protect those rights. This is the founding ideology. This mm-hmm. is directly stated in the Declaration of Independence. The Constitution was created as a limited government document in order to preserve those rights. Okay, then the founders also recognized that as you move toward localism, as you move toward subsidiarity – you get more homogenous communities, and there, there might be more call for local legislation where people, as long as their fundamental rights aren't being abused, where people can agree to live or not live, right? So you live in a community, and that community wants to try a, a greater form of economic redistributionism. Now, as long as you can take off, the founders never really saw that as a huge mm-hmm. problem, right? The, the, that's why the federal Mobility constitution— Mobility of people and free, free flow of movement This of people, is right. Sure. I mean, this is, this is why the Privileges and Immunities Clause exists. It's why the, the idea that the, the founding fathers— really only applied the Constitution to the federal government, right? Incorporation is a much later doctrine in American law. So that's why the First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of speech, guarantees it against Congress, right? The the actual amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech, freedom of the press. It's It's not an amendment that is directed at the states or at the localities. States had their own provisions. Many localities had their own provisions. But there is more scope for local communities to decide their fate than there is for the vast federal government. The reason being... Once the federal government implements something, there's no place to run. Right? Mm-hmm. If the state of California decides to to move in ways that I don't like without violating, you know, core core federal rights, for example, but they're doing something I don't like, well, I can always move. And you're seeing people do this to Texas, to Nevada, mm-hmm. to Utah. Right? This is something that's happening. And and so the founders recognize this balance. This is why federalism existed. Okay, common common good conservatism says this whole rights based thing. It's too individualistic. This whole rights-based thing is based on a perception of the individual that just isn't true. Individuals are not the locus of human society. Human beings are social creatures. They're social animals. And that means that politics happens in that space. Rights don't exist somewhere out in the ether on their own. They're a product of tradition, which is true. I mean, in terms of implementation, that is certainly true. Is something Burke argued. And then they suggest that since the since the left has taken the contr- taken control of government and the culture and has destroyed the social institutions that undergird American society, they've destroyed the family, they've destroyed the education system, they've destroyed the, the, the limited government system that we had before. Mm-hmm. Since they've destroyed all these social institutions, they've destroyed church, what we need to do is use the government. We have to use the means at our disposal yes. to promote— that's, that's what they argue. Right, to, to promote justice, to promote the common good. Now, I think that there, there are a couple of problems with this. One is it fails to acknowledge that— rights do pre-exist government, because basically what they're arguing for is a majority gets to decide what the common good is. Who decides what the common good is? If, if, if you think that a majority decides the common good, there is no difference between the left deciding the common good and you deciding the common good. On a pragmatic level, I'm highly doubtful that a bunch of social conservatives are going to be taking over the reins of a massive government and growing it 
only to continue doing that in the future. In fact, I think that the most likely outcome of all of this is that if you continue to grow the government, the left takes over the government and then uses it as a weapon against the right, which is exactly what has happened historically. Mm-hmm. And I, when, when people on the, on the common good conservatism right will say things like, you know, drag queen story hour, we need to get rid of it on a federal level, we need to get rid of it. My first response is, listen, I think drag queen story hour is a disgrace, but that does not mean that giving the federal government the right to do that isn't first going to end with the federal government banning Bible study at, at the local library, right? That, mm-hmm. That's going to happen before they ban drag queen story hour. The, the, common sense cons- the common good conservatives tend to believe that they have a majority of support where they don't actually have a majority of support. So there's this sort of philosophical gap where it's like, we wish we controlled the government. And since we wish we controlled the government, and currently we do control the government, we do everything we can, we'll grow it, we won't limit it. Rights-based conservatives say that government is basically the ring of power. You can think that you're mm-hmm. going to grab it and wield it against Sauron, but sooner or later it's going to corrupt you, and the more powerful the ring grows, the worse it's going to be when the bad guys take it over. And the analogy you use, there's only one gun on the table. That's right. I mean, when it comes to the government, government is compulsion. When everyone's fighting over the same gun, that means somebody's going to get shot. Now, you may think that you're the one going to control the gun. That sounds great, but it's not so great when the other person controls the gun. And more than that, you have to determine whether you actually want to live in a country together. And I think a lot of common good conservatives are basically reaching the point where they're saying, I'm not sure that we can live in a country together so long as we, we don't share these common values. The common values are gone, so why pretend any longer? And I think the rights-based conservatives are saying, listen, we can have wide disagreement on a mm-hmm. variety of issues so long as we recognize that this gun ought never be used and also that this gun ought to be minimized. I mean, this thing should be a pea shooter. It should not be a gun yeah, and so- in the first place. I've heard also the counter-argument. You know, my, my friend Matt Walsh, who writes for us, and, mm-hmm. and I think is... is in some ways, Very remember thoughtful. this crowd, but 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 uh, not totally. I think that that not in terms of thoughtful, in terms of a member of this crowd. I think mm-hmm. that, that Matt. So Matt says, yeah, but who decides what the rights are? Yes, the the rights argument is directed at limiting the gun. The common good argument is directed at magnifying the gun. So if you want to make an argument about magnifying the size of the gun, you should just recognize that. That gun can be wielded in any direction, as you say. And if you're talking about minimizing the size of the gun, the good news is that then we don't have to care who the president of the United States is. And this is really what the founders believed, is that your life was in your own hands. You shouldn't have to spend enormous quantities of your time worrying Mm -hmm. about politics because you have a life to lead. Well, and the founders recognized that only a good people could make this experiment work, meaning that only a moral people could actually allow limited government. As soon as the culture gets infected, then of course everything else will get Right. And so what common good conservatives say is the culture has been infected. The only way to restore the culture is through politics. And I think that's a category error. If if, if politics is downstream of – they'll say politics is part of culture. That's true. Politics is a part of culture. But politics never moves in a direction that is completely opposite to the culture. It has never happened. It never will happen. Culture antedates Mm – or sorry, predates politics. And then you can can shape – culture maybe around the edges a little bit using politics, but historically speaking, the attempt to use politics as a bulwark against social change has been a grand failure, historically speaking. So that means that conservatives are are, are digging in the wrong place, Indy. I mean, they, they really need to be looking at the culture itself rather than at politics as a curative for culture. And And this is hard for conservatives because the fact is that because we assume for a long time that culture was basically conservative, because it was in the United States, right? It was mm-hmm. a church-based culture, a family-based culture, and then it shifted radically starting in the 1960s. Because we assumed that that was always going to be the case, we stopped engaging with the culture, and we got real good at politics. And so there's only one thing that conservatives are very good at right now, and that is politics, right? We're good at it at the state level. We're mm-hmm. good at it when it comes to the House. We're good at it when it comes to the Senate. Lobbying, all of it. Well, yeah. We're great at all of that stuff, right? All of that stuff, we're very good at. We're good at building businesses. We're not very good at culture. And so 
when the only hammer in your bag is the is the politics hammer, then everything starts to look like a politics that's nail. A, that's even a very though this good is a culture, argument. even though this is a culture nail. So the the argument you're making is we've done the politics, we won the politics arena the last thirty forty years, plenty of times. Reagan, H. W. Bush. And look at the state of the country. Right, and this is the and and this is what's funny is that the common good conservatives will say, well, you know, wh- why haven't we done more in the political sphere in order to forward conservatism? Well, the government has grown under Republicans more than it's grown under Democrats. It's mm-hmm. not as though conservatives in Congress have been scaling back the size and scope of government in ways that you and I would like as rights-based conservatives. Mm-hmm. And the people at Reason Magazine are much more pissed off today than the people over in in the paleocon halls because the people at Reason are saying like let's let's scale this thing back. Republicans aren't doing it. Democrats aren't doing it. People in the in the halls of of sort of the the common good conservatism debate, those people are saying well, we need more government. Yeah, it was called compassionate conservatism. George W. Bush tried it. Donald Trump has blown out the spending for all the good stuff that, that President Trump has done. President Trump is running a bigger deficit this year than any – I mean, we're, we're going to spend $4.2 trillion this year, and we're running a trillion-dollar deficit every single year. So let's stop pretending that Republicans have, have been you know, brutally using austerity cuts and government non-involvement to shape America. It's just not true. It's just not accurate. So the argument now shifting even further, and we saw this a little bit with Pat Buchanan. In 92, and President Trump has talked about this. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. It's not just about using the metaphorical gun on the table for social change. We're talking about economics now, too. Right. And this is, this is the part where it starts to get into the a, horseshoe theory, right? Like this is it, it, So on a vague level, you can say that the left and the right, when it comes to the magnification of the size mm-hmm. of government, have started to agree. On the economic level, that's not vague anymore. On the economic level, this is absolutely clear. I mean, you're starting to see Tucker Carlson endorse Elizabeth Warren's economic plans, like openly. He's done it on his show. Right? Tucker Carlson did an interview with Vox, I think, where he, where he said, yeah, I'm very close to Bernie Sanders on a lot of this stuff. And he starts to say, well, that's a pretty good indicator that you're no longer operating inside the halls of, of conservatism. The, the notion that the economy ought to be run top down, you hear language used like this all the time. Why do we have to, why did we build a system that doesn't work for everybody? You didn't build the free market system. The free market system is a recognition of basic fundamental facets mm-hmm. of human nature. We are creative individuals. We own our own labor, right? These are, these are basic, basic arguments. And because of that, we have the free alienability of labor. I get to trade with you. A third party stepping in is not designing the system. That is now compulsion. Free markets are what operate in the absence of compulsion. Compulsive systems are what argue, uh, compulsive systems are what happens when you bring coercion to the table. And th- this is what is happening for a lot of conservatives. There's, I saw, look, Marco Rubio, right, who's a Tea Partier, has made this argument. I, I, I really like Senator Rubio. But Senator Rubio did a speech, I think it was at Georgetown University, in which he suggested that we need to make the economy work for workers. Okay, well, the economy works for Everybody who is involved in the economy because you are freely trading your labor. The idea that you value, quote, you quote unquote, value workers over consumers, you, you can't, they're the same people. Okay, you either value people or you don't value people. And there's no such thing as I value the workers over the consumers. You're a worker, you're a consumer. I'm a worker, I'm a consumer. Okay, the reason that works in a free market economy is because as both a worker and a consumer, I do not get to consume unless I work. And so the idea that you're going to design an economy top-down based on elite notions of which specific subgroup of people is worth more than another specific subgroup of people is an overtly anti-free market argument, an anti-economic freedom argument, and, and that's where you start to get really dangerous. So I, I have two thoughts on that. Number one, I have a question and a thought. The question is, do you think on the right, are you afraid that we're engaging the same kind of victimhood 
narratives that we accuse the left of? I've been worried about this for a very long time. In fact, I, I, I thought to myself, you know, I, I'm not very warm. I haven't heard to, you vocalize it as much. Maybe, oh, yeah, no, maybe, I, but, I, I, I've talked about it a fair bit, actually, you know, kind of intermittently. Um, but I, I think I'm probably going to do a big speech on it sometime next year. The, 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 and I'm, I'm writing on it right now for, for a book that's coming out next year as well. But the, the sort of mentality that is being expressed is that you deserve, as an American, X, Y, and Z. And my feeling has always been you deserve, as an American, the opportunity. You deserve the adventure. Right, but nothing is guaranteed to you. And so you hear from, from people like Tucker. I mean, I interviewed Tucker, so this is not me insulting Tucker. It's in our hour-long interview. And Tucker says, you know, all these, you're asking people to get up from where their parents were born, from where their grandparents were born. You're asking them to get up, and you're asking them to move and leave all of that behind. And I said, yeah, I mean, that, that was called America for, like, all of American history. Right? The people that we admire in American history are the people who crossed oceans in order to come here and then build something, and then people who crossed continents in order to populate the continent and build something. And now we're saying to people, no, 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 you grew up in this town, your grandfather's graveyard is here, therefore you should live here and you should die here even if the factory left 20 years ago. And not only that, it's our responsibility to bring the factory back to you. Well, no, I'm not moving the factory back to you because no one is capable of moving the factory back to you. And I, I really objected to this when I thought President Trump campaigned on this in 2016, and I, I, I thought it was, and I still think that it is a lie because no one is capable of bringing the factory back to your town without compelling other people to do things that violate their own economic freedom. The fact is that if a town does not have the resources to compete with another town, the factory is going to move, and it is the obligation of, of entrepreneurial Americans. I mean, there's an American quality to get up and move to where you can make a living, get up and move to where your life is going to be better for your children. Mobility in America right now is at an all-time low, all-time low, which is unbelievable because it's the easiest to move it has ever been in American history. It used to take, you used to get in a covered wagon, three of your kids would die of dysentery on the Oregon Trail, or you'd be shooting the squirrels and everything, and then you would finally arrive, having left several corpses in your wake, and then you would set up a homestead, and this was, and, and this was thousands and thousands of people. Millions of people over the course of American history doing similar things. And now it's like, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to have to rent a U-Haul. I don't know. I'm going to have to rent a U-Haul. I'm not minimizing the, the difficulty of moving and the pain of moving. And listen, I live near my parents. I, I'm lucky. I have nothing but sympathy for people who have to move. You know, I, I've moved back and forth only once for a prolonged period of time. But I was ready to move with my wife when she got into a med school on the East Coast, and we didn't think she was going to get into a med school on the West Coast. She was ready to move for me when it looked like I had to make a, jo make a job decision early on in my career. You have to be ready to do these things. You're guaranteed the adventure. And by the way, that's an empowering message. Your life is in your own control. You don't have to sit in a town where things are falling apart and then assume that somebody is going to ride in on a white horse to save you. And I don't have a lot of sympathy for the left's arguments that, that policy is generally racist or that the American people are racist. But I will say that the amount of that the amount of ire that is thrown at, at people in inner cities who, you know, why didn't they just get up and move? Why didn't they just get up and move? And then you have a, and then you have a city in white Appalachia and people aren't getting up and moving. And then you have people on the right going, well, those people don't have to move. It's like, well, no, actually the, the, the idea is the same. If you are living in an area that is bad for you, we need to, as, as I don't even mean by as a government, I mean, as a society, we need to help you with, by giving you the opportunity so you can better your life. But you have the obligation as an individual to go and better your life because we can't, we can't do all these things. For No one is capable of picking you up from a bad circumstance and planting you down in a wonderful circumstance, and then your life is better. Even the people who advocate for that type of position on both left and right are full-scale rebuttals of the position. I mean, Pete Buttigieg 
got ripped up by by this guy over at the root, Michael Harriet, for suggesting yeah, that educational disparities because he had to cross some sort of you know th- he had to cross a plank or something. Right, he said and, that he crossed uh, a plank over a ditch, and, and all I, the gangbangers were in the morning like, well, why weren't the gangbangers in school? Well, and, and that <laughs> was like, the big question, right? He kept saying like, well, I had opportunities, they didn't. I kept thinking to myself, well, no, actually, there was the plank, and they could have walked over the plank. And they that's didn't right, walk over and the he had to walk an extra twenty minutes or something. Like, okay, right, no, and good for him, like good for him. But that's not a and and should we make it so that the school is on the other side of that ditch? Sure, that would be wonderful. But the fact is, so long as the school is not on the other side of the ditch, then we have to incentivize people yeah. and we have to remind people that it is their individual responsibility to make the decisions that are within their purview. That does not mean society is perfect. It doesn't mean society is, is not racist or that there aren't economic discrepancies. It doesn't mean that we have a perfect free market system. We certainly don't in the United States. We have a very mixed system in the United States. It does mean that if you are not at least urging people to do the minimum of the stuff that is within their purview, then you are not doing your human response or your humane responsibility to those individuals. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. This is a great product I want to talk to you about. Uh, at Turning Point USA and at the podcast, we've been going over a lot of numbers, kind of doing our 2020 planning here. Uh, and that's why all of you guys should subscribe to The Charlie Kirk Show. It makes our planning a lot easier. Uh, but I can tell you that NetSuite by Oracle has set to solve the problem of not knowing your numbers and not knowing your business. Most companies don't have a clear picture of their finances, and that's why many businesses fail. The question for any business owner out there is, are you confident that you've got the right numbers at your fingertips? I've done a personal demo of NetSuite, and I can tell you, having bad information or no information or flying blind, um, it's really something that's not acceptable. Serious entrepreneurs and finance teams run on NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite offers a full picture of all your finances all in one place in real time right from your phone or your desktop. No more guessing, no more worry that what you don't know could kill your company. That's why NetSuite customers grow three times faster than the S&P 500 and you can too. Schedule your free demo right now and receive their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. I'm telling you guys got to check it out. It's a terrific thing. It's right now. You go to NetSuite.com slash Kirk. You pull out your phone, go to NetSuite.com slash Kirk. It's a free demo and get your free guide today at netsuite.com slash kirk that's netsuite.com slash kirk we begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way so pick up your mccafe iced coffees close your eyes and deep sip in and deep satisfaction out ah <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary. So as you support on the right growing and questions popping up more and more, and some very well-intentioned, mm-hmm, by the way, mm-hmm. from a lot of students saying, but why don't we just do a wealth tax? Why don't we you know, restrict you know, certain companies from being right. too big? And the, the, when it... Common good conservatives, and I have some sympathy for some of the policies, and you know, and I have some sympathy for some of the populist energy around that, definitely, and a hundred percent on the observations, a lot of the problems. But where I get really concerned is when it really dives into the economic class warfare, right? And you are starting to see this. This is growing quickly, Ben, for sure, and it makes sense. I mean, it's why wouldn't it grow quickly? It's always been a, a solid plank of of virtually all successful political American per- right? William I mean, Jennings Bryan to Teddy Roosevelt to. I mean, it, I mean, FDR was talking about the malefactors of great wealth. Mm-hmm. I mean, Elizabeth Warren and, and Tucker, right, who's attacking Paul Singer, uh, you know, that's – all of that has a long, I would say, inglorious history in American public life. The, the failure on the right to to educate about both the efficacy of free markets and the morality of free markets is a serious failure. 
the, the failure to understand that the reason that people generally are billionaires is because they've involved themselves in an enormous number, an enormous number of consensual transactions that bettered the lives of people who are involved in the mutually consensual transactions. And these are these. The, yeah, so, so what do you have to say about the narrative about against private equity and it's the worst thing ever? Because that's that's out there. I mean, I mean first, I, of, first of all, I, I you know. I don't want to rip on, on. I feel like I'm ripping on Tucker here, but I'm using I'm using Tucker as a stand-in I for an ideology. I understand, and I think Tucker gets that too, right? Tucker is a very powerful advocate for for his position. He's very good at what he does. I have a lot of respect for Tucker's intellect. The fact is that 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 Tucker is probably the loudest voice pushing this stuff right now, and the most overt voice pushing this stuff right now. And when people rip on private equity, my question is, okay, and what is your alternative? So I heard Tucker ripping on on Paul Singer for doing things that, that Bain Capital was doing, right? Going into towns where there was a dying company, buying up the company, selling off some of the assets, and then setting up the company somewhere else or selling off the company for parts. People are like, oh, that's terrible. How could they do such an immoral thing? And the alternative is, the alternative is, okay, because the alternative generally is bankruptcy. The alternative generally is that that company goes under. Okay, this is not a choice between the company keeps operating as before, operating on slimmer and slimmer profit margins until it ceases to exist. That is not the option. The option is that the company falls apart, and then there are no jobs there. Okay, so the fact is that when people come in and they provide the value add, and by the way, take on the risk of a failing company, which is what they are doing. That's why, presumably, if they thought that it was worth more than that, they'd have to find a competitive bidder who would buy buy it for more. If if Tucker wants to go into these dying towns and buy up these companies, he is perfectly fine. Tucker has some money on him. I mean, Tucker is getting paid by Fox. Uh, Tucker Tucker playing at at sort of blue collar working man. Is, is sort of amusing to me. Listen, I'm not blue-collar working man either. Like the, the, the fact is that Tucker's, you know, that there are a lot of people who, who play at populism who are, are doing these sort of, I'm, I'm just ditch-digging, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a wage earner like the rest of you. Yeah, but the wage is kind of different, ain't it? I mean, the fact is, <laughs> like, the, the, the whole thing is, it, it's, it smacks of a refusal to acknowledge economic realities in order to malign people for engaging in not only legal transactions, but I would argue in many cases, it is a moral thing to do. People do not understand how business works. Okay, a lot of folks seem to think that people who run businesses are sitting around with a giant Scrooge McDuck money bin in the back, and they're just swimming in that, while at the same time, they're looking for people to fire on the, on the, on the, bread li- on the line. And, and that's not true, okay? I co-run a business. My business, we've had to fire people before. It is the worst thing in the I, world. It's the worst, okay? Firing people is horrible. It's the I would, worst I would thing much, in the world. I would much rather give everybody at my company raises on a continuous basis than fire them. I'm not hiring people because I want to hurt them. I'm, and and this, this notion that you should be hating your boss, you should be hating private equity, you should be hating the stock market. First of all, your 401k is tied up in the stock market. Second of all, the stock market is providing the liquidity necessary to launch new businesses and to provide new infusions of capital for businesses that want to add employees and develop technologically so there's competition. Now, listen, there are places in American foreign policy where you can make the argument against free trade, not an economic level, on a foreign policy level. China, get, China is the best case of, of this, right? Where you say to the American people, listen, Iran is another right, example. I mean, yeah. Exactly. You're going to have to take an economic hit because we are going to fight this country that is a rising global threat and is cheating on its trade deals. I'm fully on board with all of that. But this idea that people who are investing their own money and their own time and their own risk into businesses in order to make those businesses run, in order to make those businesses more profitable. And by the way, the profit margin is what decides the value of an object in your society. We, we are going all the way back to almost a Marxist take on the labor theory of value here that was debunked by the Austrian school, and it's irritating to me. I mean, this, uh, this notion that there's a group of people, whether it's Bernie or Elizabeth or Tucker, and they can decide the objective value of an object or a business 
based on what kind of knowledge? Like, really, I, I want to know. When, 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 when Tucker was ripping on Paul Singer for buying out, I'm trying to remember the name of the business. Cabela's. Uh, for buying out Cabela's or convincing the board, right? Blackmailing the board. First of all, the, that's an independent board, right? They have a, they have a choice to make. Okay, and, and but beyond that, when when Tucker says, "Well, he, you know, he he should have kept the he should have kept the business there," I want Tucker to explain to me the line item labor costs at that Cabela's. Like, really, does he know the budget? I have serious doubts. I have a feeling the people who actually run the company and deal with the workers every day and are on the line every day and are trying to figure out how these things get sold to the company know better than you. Look, this is the basic Hayekian fallacy. Frederick Hayek talked about the, the, the fatal conceit. The fatal conceit is that there are a group of people who know better than the people who actually run their businesses, how those businesses run, how the economy ought to be run, and how to decide what things are of value and what those values should be as opposed to the diffuse sources of knowledge that exist in a free marketplace. That's not been true ever. It's never going to be true. And... If you want to acknowledge the trade-offs, if you want to say, listen, I think this Cabela's is so important that we are going to give it a subsidy, then you need to make the case to the American people that we should all turn over some of our money to that Cabela's because it's very important that these specific people in these specific towns need to stay there because if they don't, the rest of the society will collapse. Mm. But you are privileging some citizens over others, and you are invading the economic rights of some citizens in favor of, of the economic privileges of others. So if you want to acknowledge the trade-off, then we can have the conversation. But I don't see anybody acknowledging the trade-off. I just get the, it's a bunch of malign, nefarious influences, people with bad motives going in there to hurt people. Just not true. I, I, have, two, I have so many thoughts on that. But the first that comes to mind... Do you think neoliberalism then is on the course of it's it's on it's on its way to death? I think neoliberal. Uh, uh, you know, I, and I define, hate to use that word. I mean, I, I don't. Well, I, I don't you, want a you, definition. I don't want a definition. Okay, I mean, so you've but, been you've been articulating Hayekian, you know, von Mises inspired Austrian economics, um, Friedman esque free yes. trade ideas, the neoliberal idea of freedom of movement, individual liberty, um, that the price system matters. Do you think that that there's an inevitability that that will be a, well, like, in, in a minority a, of minority of public opinion soon? Well, um, I mean, I think that as Ronald Reagan said about about you know American values themselves, we're always one generation away from extinction. I think that we've we've failed to, to teach right. But the, a lot of this what, stuff. what but I'm yes. seeing though, Ben, which is different, is that in the 80s and 90s there were voices that were expressing criticisms of neoliberalism, mm -hmm. but it, it seems as if that there's more than ever before. Yeah, well, I mean, on the I, don't, right. I, I think on the right, that's true. I think that it, more than ever before is probably an overstatement just because there were a lot of voices maybe, against maybe this sort I'm of thinking in the 50s I'm, and 60s, yeah. right? There, there were a lot of people on the right, supposed Republicans, who were voting in favor of LBJ's Great Society programs mm -hmm. because the idea was the company— you actually Well, Dwight see this, D. Eisenhower had huge big government programs Yeah, in, exactly. In I mean, 91% yeah. top marginal tax mm -hmm. rates and all of this. So the, the, the fact is that if you, if you look at the history of the United States, we have this sort of history where we— embrace free markets for a particular period of time. It creates tremendous upward mobility. It creates tremendous progress in terms of the society. And then we look around and we go, yeah, the society's doing well, but what about the people at the bottom? And then we start redistributing the wealth and we start top, you know, piling programs on top of all of this. And then it starts to reduce the level of wealth creation. It starts to reduce the economic growth. And then we go, oh, man, this is too much. And then we sort of remove some of those programs. That's the stories of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. In the 50s, we have this tremendous economic boom that's largely happening. Pent up demand, World War II. And I mean, the rest of the world was literally a rubble heap. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were the only producers on planet Earth after World War II because we were a giant island that was not touched by World War II, as opposed to all of Europe, which was devastated, all of Asia, which was devastated. Literally, no one had the capacity to produce anything mm -hmm. right. <laughs> for 15 years without America infusing our money into those countries. And then 
we were like, oh, well, look at this. This is going to go on forever. We're the only country that's capable of producing. This will go on forever. And so in the 50s and 60s and, and even the 40s, you start to see all sorts of legislation promoted at the federal level that is, that is that puts significant burdens on the free market system. And by the 60s, by the late 60s, we are, we're spending enormous quantities of money. We've got the New Deal programs and the Great Society programs, and economic growth just stagnates completely for an entire decade in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And then the American people are like, oh, this was, oh, this was a mistake. And then they elect Reagan. And, th- and then you get the Reagan upsurge. But I-, I think that one of the things that's been crippling the United States, and this is just true socially in terms of foreign policy, is that people tend to exist in opposition to others. And when the Soviet Union fell, people had to figure out what exactly they were orienting against. People don't just orient for, people also orient against. In politics, we tend to say, because we, we like to be optimists, well, you know, don't do negative campaigning, do pot. Say what you're for, don't just say what you're against. Yeah, but you also have to say what you're against. And people, because we are, mm-hmm. because we are risk-averse creatures, and because our human nature is that we have flight or, or fight mm-hmm. instincts, we want to know what it is that's hiding around that corner that's going to jump out and, and eat us. Well, when it was the Soviet Union, it was like, okay, you guys who are, who are pitching collectivism, who are pitching crackdowns on the free market, you want to see the ultimate example of that? Look right over there. It ain't going great mm-hmm. over there. And those people are now threatening us with nuclear weapons. And once that fell, it became, okay, well, now we can have the internal conversation about how much of our, how, how far in, in that direction should we move, but we'll never mention the Soviet Union ever again, right? We'll just, it just doesn't exist. Bernie, who was... Honeymoon. honeymooning over there, right? And, and has praised every communist regime that ever existed on planet Earth. He, he doesn't mean those places anymore. Now he means Norway. Now he means Denmark, right? And so it turns into a conversation about Norway and Denmark, ignoring the fundamental arguments that are made in favor of collectivization of wealth. Those arguments actually speak less to Norway and Denmark than they actually do to Cuba mm-hmm. in terms of his feelings about the free market system. Bernie will say things like, well, I acknowledge the capacity of the free market system to create wealth. And then he immediately... So yeah, billionaires no, shouldn't exist. Exactly. Yeah. Then just destroys, <laughs> just destroys the entire system wholesale. Yeah, and Ben, I, I'm real. This is awesome to talk to you about this because I see it within our Turning Point USA members and just the conservative movement in general. Where, especially when it comes to the issues of big tech, when it comes to the issue of you know, e- economics of young people. And I'm getting, you know, I get messages. Well, Charlie, what's the conservative student loan forgiveness plan? Like, what, right. what, are you, what are you talking about? The, like, right, the conservative student loan forgiveness like, plan. How is, about take a gap year before you go to college and like, or don't go, that, well, or, I mean, or make, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you're doing okay. My business partner Jeremy Boring, right? Yeah. Jeremy went to like music school for a year and a half and dropped out. Right, we, we we actually took off of our applications at Daily Wire college experience. We don't care. Like right, we, we, well, but my because fe- my business partner literally said it would be hypocritical for me to look at somebody's level of education and decide based on that whether they're going to be a good employee or not. I didn't go to college. My fear, though, and and this is what I'm this is why I'm I'm am t- talking about this with everyone yeah. is that if, if the right if we think we're going to get in the competition of giving out free stuff better than the left, yes, yeah, <laughs> good luck, you, good luck. But we if we if we cease to advocate for liberty and freedom and just say well yeah we'll have to have our own package of conservative student loan forgiveness and do it this way i mean we, we this will not be a sustainable movement they the left will win in, in ways we've never seen before and so that is very very concerning to me a hundred percent i mean and and you see that the the arguments that president trump typically makes that are stronger than the arguments of the left are his anti-left arguments. Are the arguments he's the where he greatest says anti-leftist president. He's fantastic. When it comes to bashing the left, he is the best. Mm-hmm. When it comes to advancing conservative ideas, I have questions. When it comes to bashing the left and, and pointing out where the left is wrong, 
obviously he's he's great at that. By the way, that's the best part of Tucker too. I've criticized Tucker a lot. Tucker's great at this, right? When Tucker sees a, a, a silliness or a foolishness on the left, Tucker is is he's got pinpoint accuracy in targeting that stuff and tearing it apart. That's what is going to make the right popular. But when it comes to promoting a positive agenda, the positive agenda can't just be okay. Well, we're going to forgive half the loans that the Democrats want to forgive, or we're going to we're going to nationalize half the healthcare system that the Democrats want to fully nationalize. By the way. Even if the even if the right won on that on that basis, we're going to be bankrupt in 15 years. So, like all of this, the, neither the right nor the left is willing to acknowledge the the sad reality of this, which is that we've already overspent. And the fact yeah. is that two thirds of our federal budget is mandatory. All the debates about budgetary items and and how we need to cut the budget, unless you are fundamentally willing to restructure these entitlement programs, we're bankrupt in 15 or years. Or hyperinflate no what you your do. way out of it. It's or, the end of the way, yeah. right? Exactly. Devalue your currency so much for that. It means that you can either. It's either austerity programs or inflation. Those are the right. only two yeah. ways you can do this. So, in, in total closing, Ben, um, I, I just want to hear really briefly how you start, how you started the Daily Wire. How's it going? As business owner, business owner, I love stories of entrepreneurship, and I, I don't think you talk about it enough. Just how you've you know grown this to be you know a really successful company in the. So yeah. it's Mark's it's, the state of California. So this is kind of a funny story. So we so we were working at a nonprofit. My my business partner. I, and I remember. And I, we were working at a nonprofit. Oh, that's where and, I met you first. Yeah, exactly. And actually, down in this area, mm-hmm. and uh, and we went to the board of this nonprofit, and we said, okay, here's the deal. We believe that we have a plan for social media marketing that's going to be very effective, and we're going to need you to give us X number of dollars, and you are going to then and you are then going to receive on the other end a machine that that is able to reach people at a massive scale, and it'll be self-sustaining because people will give donations because they enjoy all of this. And the people on the board did not get it because we were talking about social media, and the board happened to be disproportionately older folks. And so they asked me to simplify. I literally took a napkin, and I drew on the napkin. I said, here's our plan. And it said, dollar sign, arrow, social media, arrow, website, arrow back to dollar sign. I said, here's our business plan. And they fired us. And, uh, and then we took that business plan and we found uh, some angel investors who invested in us initially. By 18 months in, we were running purely off cash flow. Uh, and we have built a business with well over 100 employees. Wow. We, we uh, you know, have 120 million pages a month on our website. My, my podcast is, by most estimates, the fifth largest podcast in the world. So, I mean, all, all of this is a result of, yes, good planning, a lot of luck, obviously. There's always, there's always, and when I say luck, I mean we we took all of the things that we could do to give ourselves the opportunity to succeed, and we put those in place, and, and then and then hard. and then it works out or it doesn't work. Luck out. is opportunity, meaning hard work. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So but, that so we, th- things are going well. You guys are growing. Well, and, thank God. Yeah, I mean, we, we had yeah. something like 49 employees this time last year. Now we're well up above 100. So we are mm. we're scaling. We've been scaling very quickly. So you're a media company that's growing. While most media companies are are firing, yeah, exactly, and and I think that that is because we understand the social media marketplace really well, as as some people have on, on the left have noticed and and fumed about. Yeah, so a clandestine network of so much Facebook. clandestineness, so much secret secret. What do you have to say about the accusation? You run a clandestine network of Facebook pages. So much clandestineness. <laughs> I mean, all of the clandestine Facebook pages where we post nothing but Daily Wire content, which is obviously super, like, I mean, we're hiding it. We are just, like, normally, if you were going to be clandestine, what you would do is you'd slide some Daily Wire content in among all of the other fake content. But if you really want to hide it, what you do is you just make every post a Daily Wire post, so people really can't tell that it's a Daily Wire post. That's the way that this works. 
Also, the, all of those clandestine networks were responsible for, I think, 1% of our entire traffic. So very, very clandestine. Mm-hmm. It's not that we're good at our jobs. It's not that we it sounds like someone who saw a Jason Bourne film the, the weekend before and then decided to say it. The whole thing is, is ridiculous. But you know, thank God for the Internet. Thank God for, for social media. And I do think that in the area of dissemination of ideas, the Internet is, is the, place to be. the place to be. Ben, you're awesome. Thanks hey, so much, you, Ben. Dude. Appreciate it. What a great episode. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Make sure you guys are subscribed to The Charlie Kirk Show. Rand Paul, Dan Crenshaw, Ted Cruz, the Vice President of the United States. What other show gets guests like The Charlie Kirk Show? So right now, go to your podcast provider, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, type in Charlie Kirk Show, press subscribe, leave us those reviews. We are surging in the charts. Thanks to your support. It means so much. Go take your liberal friend's phone, type in Charlie Kirk Show, press that subscribe button, leave us a five-star review. And if you guys want to get involved with the most important organization of the country, Turning Point USA, go to tpusa.com. That's tpusa.com. You can get involved by starting a chapter, pitching in some money, go to one of our events. You guys have to get involved. It's such an important year for liberty and for freedom go to tpusa.com that's tpusa.com we have exciting news it's official our show is now on spotify and it's free we want to make it super easy for you and your friends to listen to the podcast and joining spotify allows us to be even more places for you guys to find us so go to Spotify right now if you guys enjoy it already. If you already listen to music on Spotify, now you can listen to the podcast in the same place. If you're not on Spotify yet, all you have to do is download the free app. That's right. No credit card necessary. Go to Spotify, type in The Charlie Kirk Show, press subscribe. Keep listening, everybody. Thanks so much. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary.